Here we are now. With chapter number seven in our series, Impressions of Grace and Grit. And this chapter is called My Life Had Twisted Suddenly. And there was just one thing I wanted to quickly re-emphasize about the previous chapter, chapter 6, which was that it's just beautiful how Treya and Ken had this deep conversation about the meaning of meditation and the levels of the witness and ego and what it means to dissolve into the cosmic self dissolve into Godhead. And the reason it was so beautiful is because that's that's actually Ken's work. That's his life. That's his daemon. That's what he was on this planet to do, is to write about these exact things. And in many relationships, well, sometimes the man or the woman's work is periphery. It's just something you do for money. It's just something on the side. But here, it's very special because it's central to their relationship. And for a man or a woman to find a partner who is genuinely interested in their work is a very beautiful thing. And one of the best things you can do to strengthen your relationship is, well, talk about your work with your intimate partner. And talk about it in a sincere way. And listen in a sincere way. And understand in a sincere way. So that's something that I just thought I'd recapitulate as we launch off into this chapter. So Treya's got these bumps under her right arm and she's been to the doctors to have an assessment and she calls up to find out what the results are. And she she does this just after she's coming out of class. So she's at school doing her studies and she calls up And the doctor says, well, I'm afraid it's bad news. It's a reoccurrence. And this starts up the whole confusion and worry again in Treya. She's had a recurrence. And she says she has this odd feeling of looking down on herself from above as she drives around the city. She has a sudden sense of being a different person. Now that she's heard this news, she feels she's no longer the person who had cancer, emphasis on the past tense, but now she's someone who's had a recurrence. 
And this puts her in a totally different group. A different group of peers. A different group of statistics. And it gives her a totally different future. And not only her, but for Ken as well. Her life has twisted suddenly. Unexpectedly. She's had a recurrence. She still has cancer. This is not over yet. So she continues her day. And she doesn't go straight home after hearing this news. She's actually got some work. And she's working with a client in a one-on-one session for counselling. Can you believe that? She goes to her counselling session and does counselling for someone else when she's just found out that she's got cancer. And someone might say, well, it's quite easy to just push your problems aside and somehow... In some ways, I can see that actually it would be a good thing to take your mind off. There'd be some pleasure in suppressing the news and actually going into someone else and listening to someone else and actually just just forget about it for some time. That is possible to do. So it's not just a nobility that is, or a sense of duty that's driving her to do this. But there is a nobility in it. There is something admirable in it. Because what this is a big question. This is a micro scene of her going to her counseling session with her client that echoes the macro issue, which is what do you do when you find out you've got cancer? What do you do? Do you stop? Do you change everything? Or do you keep going how you're going? Do you keep doing what you're doing because... You know, that's the best thing that you can do. You're already doing what's needed. And it could have been that she could cancel the session and say, look, I'm sorry, I can't do this for you. And then, well, maybe the world wouldn't be quite as bright a place because of that. And so Trey has decided to go ahead with it. And she's able to put off any thoughts for the time being. But of course, after the session, she goes home and she has to tell Ken that these spots under the arm, well, it wasn't much else it could be. It wasn't going to be ant bites. And well, now they have to start up weighing the options. What are the options? Well, one option is to have a mastectomy, And she wonders if she should have had that in the first place. Maybe if she'd done that, perhaps this wouldn't be happening now. So that's to remove the breast, to actually cut out all of the tissue in the surrounding areas of where the cancer is. Another option is to do a re-excision of the tumor site where the drainage tube was and where the bumps had appeared. And if more cancer cells were found in that area, then they could pinpoint some radiation. But the problem was that, well, 
They can't actually predict how the tissue would react to more radiation. And one of the strange things about this reoccurrence is that it's actually occurred within an area that they've already done radiation therapy on. So it might be that that might not do anything. And then there's another option, which is an excision of the area around the drainage tube exit. And since they can't know for sure if there are more cells behind the breast, then more radiation to the breast. And this has another drawback. Well, just like option two, which is that, well, we don't know if these cells are actually resistant to the radiation. So it's a tough decision. It's a tricky decision because you can't really know what you're working with and you can't really know what's in there because, well, it's the human body. It's flesh, it's cells, it's biology that we're talking there's only so much they can tell exactly about, well, what's going on and what's going to be most likely. So she decides to go ahead with the removal of the breast. And another thing that is mentioned here is that, well, they're still looking at all these sort of alternative and holistic treatments. And there's a whole bunch of them and they've got some friends that are recommending them. And there are new things and there are avant-garde things and there are obscure things. But at this case, at this stage, there's still no credible evidence at all that any of the alternative treatments had a significantly higher cure rate than that of just random spontaneous remission. Basically, their chances are no higher than just chance. It's the same as chance. And, well, what are you going to do when you're losing a breast? When you're having a part of your body cut out? And Trey's spoken previously in the narrative about, well, she feels quite comfortable about her breasts. And there was a time when she even had considered getting a, pre- a breast reduction because they're so large. And she'd also talked about You know, sometimes when her mother's saying, oh, well, what sort of clothes do you want? We need these sorts of clothes or that sorts of clothes. So fashion has been a bit of an issue because of her breasts, how she wants to look, how she wants to feel, these sorts of things. But she's grown to like them. She's grown to actually be quite comfortable in her body. And when she asks Ken, well, what do you think about me losing a breast? He's great about it. And of course it can't be easy for him, but he says, Sweetheart, of course I'm going to miss your breast, but that doesn't matter. It's you I'm in love with, not some body part. This doesn't change a damn thing. And he's so obviously sincere about it that it makes her feel wonderful. So it's a very strong bond that they have and a very authentic communication between themselves that they have and Ken has to walk such a fine line between trying to sympathize with her and also trying to cheer her up she doesn't want to sympathize with the lost 
too much. He doesn't want to sympathise too much because if he does, then, well, maybe it might turn out to seem that, well, do you really care that much? And Ken, well, he's got a sense of humour about it. He's really funny about it. And he says, I really don't mind, honey. The way I look at it is this. Every man is given so many breast inches per lifetime that he's allowed to grope his way through. In just one year with your double Ds, I've already used up my quota. And they both start laughing. And then he goes on and he's sort of being goofy and he says, well, you wouldn't know it. I'm an ass man myself. As long as they don't figure out how to give a rump dichotomies in this place, we've got it made. And of course, this is very funny. And even as they laugh, well, there are some tears as well, because that's how it is with cancer. You laugh so hard that you cry, and you cry so hard that you laugh. And the doctor comes in, they've got a surgeon, they've got an oncologist, they've got the anesthetologist, anesthesiologist, geez, that's a mouthful to pronounce. The, the one that does the anesthetic, as well as the nurses and the plastic surgeons. And Trey's sort of looking through the work of this plastic surgeon and <laughs> trying to pick out, oh, what sort of shape am I going to have? Because the other, the other side, she's going to get re- reduced a bit. And there's going to be a prosthetic one made for her so she can be balanced. And the doctor marks it up and says, well, this is what's going to go here. And there are a few decisions like, well, where is the nipple going to move to? And where is the tuck going to be? And what sort of things happen like this? And she's very matter of fact about it. She's very comfortable about it. And it even is a bit funny when, (laughs) well, Treya's parents walk in and she's got her breasts sort of being marked up. And she's like, oh, no, look at this. And then she's looking at the plant foots and it's very much... Like, oh, well, this is just what it's all about. This is just another day, you know, taking care of your breasts. And she's very matter-of-fact about it, which is just shows so much about her resilience. And they come to the point, well, the research is done. The decisions are made. And it's no longer the time for questions. It's the time to get through what needs to be done. And she reflects that she's aware of these parts within herself that she has turned off. There are parts of her being which she has consciously decided to shut down because she's decided that they're not useful for what she's going through. They're not useful for how she's going to get through this surgery, how she's going to get through this change. For example, she's turned off her worrier, how much she worries. And for another part, she's turned off her questioner, a part of her that is curious, that is asking questions, that wants to know. And those are important parts, particularly the questioner. You need to ask a lot of questions when you're making a big decision about your body, about surgery. And yet the time comes when you just have to sit and live with it. 
and then go through with it. She says she feels relaxed and confident. Which is no doubt in part also because she's been meditating more and come back to the contemplative life. And Ken, well, he has a moment. And he says this, at this stage, as she's going into surgery. Quote, I don't know why, but I didn't want Treya to see me cry. I'm not ashamed of crying. It's just that, for some reason, at that particular point, I didn't want anybody to see me cry. Perhaps I was afraid that if I started crying... I would break down completely. Perhaps I was afraid to be weak at this point where my strength was needed. I found an empty room, closed the door, sat down, and started crying. It finally dawned on me. I am not crying because I pity Treya or feel sorry for her. I am crying because I admire her bravery so much. She simply marches through this, refusing to let it get her down. And her courage in the face of this demeaning, senseless, fucking cruelty makes me cry. End quote. So she wakes up in recovery and she has a few days in hospital for recovery and Ken stays with her. And they actually find out that, well, there's someone else there that they know, just an old friend, who's there pregnant with a baby on the way. And, well, she's in hospital because... uh, And another sort of trivial piece of information is this, is that it's one of the co-founders of Esalen Institute. So I'm just thinking like, what? Does Ken Wilber know everyone in the transcendental film? D- t- transcendental industry. I was going to say film industry, but it's just the transcendental in- industry. And I'm thinking, well, I guess big minds hang out with big minds, don't they? <laughs> Maybe that's what's happening. But anyway, that's that's just sort of trivia. That's sort of another... Maybe it's just maybe we can be charged of name dropping there. Are you just name dropping Mr. Wilbur? Like you know these big people, you know these famous people who have done these incredible things. Co founder. Michael Murphy is his name, one of the co founders of Esalen Institute. Man, Esalen Institute, it's well well checking out. I mean I'm I'm gonna guess that these days it's overpriced, but it's a part of transcendental psychology history that you should be aware of and this baby that michael's wife is having is well he seems a bit ambivalent about being born and one night ken has a dream about this baby and basically 
Ken is talking to this unborn baby saying, hey, look, why don't you want to be born? Are you reluctant or something? And the baby's like, here in the bardo, it's pretty, pretty comfortable. I think I might stay here. I don't know if I want to be born. And Ken says, well, you can't really do that because the bardo realm is, well, it's a transitionary world. And plus there's a whole lot of people that want you to be born. And the baby says, well, where's my teddy bear if people want me to be born? And then Ken wakes up and the next day he goes to visit and Ken brings him a teddy bear. And he calls into the tummy of the mummy and says, hey, here's your teddy bear. And then a few weeks later, lo and behold, the baby was born healthy and not even needing an incubator. So that is a wonderful outcome to that little side story. And there's two things in that. I mean, you've really got to be on board with, well, when we're working with dreamscape, what are we working with? Did Ken have some divine insight? Did he actually talk to the baby? It's some ESP spooky thing happened there? Not exactly. We want him to remain nuanced and grounded even when we talk about dreamscape interpretation and what it means to interact in the dream world. So let's not get all freaky on us. And then the other side of this is, well, what's the bardo? So that's a piece of old Sanskrit philosophy, which is going to come up again in this narrative, I believe, if my, if my memory serves me correctly. Basically, the bardo is that thing between two worlds. It's not death, it's not life, it's not the afterlife. It's somewhere between, and souls wait in the bardo to be born. This is in the Book of the Dead, but it's going to come up again. So, and, and again, we want to be, well, we want to see how this fits in with the bigger picture, with the integral picture. So we're not going all spooky. We haven't gone Gaia. We just want to be open to multiple paradigms. And this moment is just a, well, it's just a passing part of the story, really. And they go home. They go back to their beach house. And as it is with cancer, when you have surgery, you then have many follow-ups, both checking with how you are as a patient, both for how the surgery has turned out and also for checking for reoccurrences and other symptoms, but also they, they go through what they cut out and they actually put it under the microscope and they analyze it. So with this, the doctors seem fairly unanimous that a recurrence was almost certainly in the breast tissue only and not in the chest wall. And this distinction was crucial because if it were a local reoccurrence, then the cancer would be confined to the same type of tissue, breast tissue. If, however, 
it had jumped to the chest wall. That meant the cancer had learned how to invade a different type of tissue. So it's now spreading to two or more different types of breast tissue. That's if it's found in the breast wall rather than the breast tissue. And that would mean, well, once it learns to jump between different types of tissue, it may very quickly invade the lungs or the bones or the brain. So if Trey's recurrence was local, then she had already taken the necessary steps of action. Remove the rest of the local tissue. And that would be it. No other follow-up, no radiation, no chemotherapy. None of this would be recommended. However... If the recurrence was in the chest wall, that meant Treya would have a stage 4, grade 4 cancer, which is the worst diagnosis one can receive. So let's, let's just do a little bit of an understanding of what the stages mean. Basically, the stage of a cancer is determined by the size and the spread of the tumor. From stage 1, which is less than a centimeter in size, to stage four, which is spread through the body. Then we have the grade of the cancer, which represents how mean it is from grade one to four. So Trey's original tumor was stage two, grade four. And yet if she has a chest wall reoccurrence, that would mean that stage four Grade 4 would be what she has. And in that case, only extremely aggressive chemotherapy would be recommended. And aggressive and mean means how, how quickly it spreads. So we can say, okay, this cancer can spread between multiple kinds of tissue, but it's got a speed to it. How quickly does it do that? And it takes time to analyze that. The oncologists are looking through microscopes to work that out, to deduce that. And they're coming up with their reports. So it's still up to a bit of back and forth. But as it actually turns out, well, you're actually all right. We should be hopeful that, well, she's cut out everything and there's nothing left. And this is the end of her cancer days. She's now in recovery. Which means she still has to keep having follow-ups. There's still chance of a recurrence. But she should be in the clear. And so she starts doing some other, well, alternative things. Some alternative medicines. Particularly with her immune system. And the doctor says, well, the white man doctor says, puts it like this. If you've got a car that's only running on seven cylinders... That won't make the eighth cylinder start working. But Treya feels that, well, she needs to start doing something. She needs to be active in her recovery some way. So she needs to be proactive. And the other thing is, well, what's the harm? What's the harm in having a very strong immune system, even if you can't get that eighth cylinder working? So it's not a matter of, See, see, here's this question. It's like, you've got this question, does alternative medicine work? That's such a broad question because 
The only answer to that is, well, what do you mean by work? Does it do what it's advertised to do? Does it do something? Does it work on the immune system? Does it boost the immune system? Does it restore the immune system to its previous strength? Well, these are all nuances. These are all things to consider. And basically, at this point, Trey's attitude is, if there's a chance it might work, it's worth doing. Because why not? You can't really go wrong with having a stronger immune system. And this becomes her core curriculum. This is her basic This is her basic daily routine, and it's actually a pretty good daily routine. You could actually use this as a blueprint. So there's five or six things that she does. Number one, careful diet. Mostly lacto-vegetarian, low-fat, high-carbohydrate, as much raw as possible. No social drugs of any sort. Okay, Treya, you're going to have to lay off the DMT. Lay off the meth, Treya. I don't know if that's funny. <laughs> Is there space for dark humor in this story? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I mean, Ken was just making titty jokes a few moments ago, so am I allowed to make drug jokes? I don't know. <laughs> Number two, let's just pretend that didn't happen. <laughs> Number two, daily megavitamin therapy with emphasis on the antioxidants. A- E, C, B1, B5, B6, the minerals zinc and selenium, the amino acids crystalline and methionine. I can't pronounce these scientific things very well. Basically, it's a highly tailored vitamin therapy. And that would be specifically tailored to her. So these doctors would be doing blood tests and things like this and then checking out her weight and blood pressure and a whole bunch of things. So you couldn't you couldn't take this as a blueprint down to the details. You'd have to say, well, okay, careful diet. What's my careful diet? Well, for her, it's as much raw food as possible, but for you, it might be something different. Number two, okay, daily megavitamins, but okay, so I need daily megavitamins, but not the same vitamins as her. And then number three, well, meditation. Daily in the morning and often in the afternoon as well. Well, this is something you can prescribe to everyone. Everyone should be doing meditation every day. Number four, visualizations and affirmations. Number five, journal keeping. And she's quite detailed in her journal keeping because she's got not only her narrative which is oh, how she's feeling, what she's thinking about, what happened in her day, how her relationship is, these sorts of things. But she's also got a daily log. So a logbook is slightly different to a journal or a narrative journal. A logbook would be more things like, well, what exactly you ate or what exactly, you know, you might have a digestive log, what time you went to the bathroom, was it solid liquid or what was the qualities of it? My friend used to call that the poo diary. I found it very funny. He said, oh, no, just a minute. I'm writing in my poo diary. <laughs> and then there's also the dream journal. So that comes back to the dreamscape. But that's very important. If you're doing 
meditation, if, you, if you're at a certain point in your meditative practice where you're becoming more aware of your dreams, you're remembering your dreams and you're starting to interact with your dream world and writing a dream, ju- dream journal can help supl- supplement that very much so. And then the last point is exercise, either jogging or walking. Ken also talks to this alternative medicine doctor who thinks that the cause of cancer is this virus. And this doctor is basically saying that, well, this virus appears across multiple cancers. But Ken, well, he's a pretty smart cookie and he takes a look at it and says, well, this is not working because these viruses work more like a scavenger, not a cause. And yet he still decides to go ahead with the treatment or Treyer and him still decide to go ahead because, well, it doesn't hurt to break out your scavengers. It doesn't help to clear off your viruses. So that's a good example of alternative medicine not exactly doing what it says it does but doing something else and yet deciding that that's something good that you want to go ahead with. So these are complex nuances to consider. And Treya reflects on it being a little bit eerie because it's around Christmas time that she has this surgery and that she's recovering from it. And this, well, it's exactly one year after her initial surgery. So to be going through it at the same time of year a year later, is a little bit strange. And she takes a moment to just let that sink in and reflect on how much worry she had and how much fear she had, how much lack of equanimity she had, and how her decisions were made out of panic, how so much of her Thoughts were concerned with death and existential issues. And then now this year, while she's feeling quite good, she's feeling much more equanimous, much less fearful, much more grounded, much more clear. She's ready. She's done all these things. She's doing quite well to have come through what she has. And yet, as time passes, well, more analysis comes back. And as she keeps having checkups, well, the weight of opinion changed amongst the doctors, which was that, in fact, she has had a chest wall reoccurrence, which means that this is Metastastic cancer, the worst two symbols you could put together on one page. Grade 4, stage 4, cancer. 
And of course, this is infuriating. There's a lot of anger around this. Because a lot of the doctors, well, they're undecided. And if it is a wall occurrence, then, well, it's chemotherapy. And that's hard enough to go through when you know you need it. So what about when you don't really know for sure? When you suspect there's nothing more going on than a few stray cells left behind during an operation, but you want to be like, chemotherapy is not something that you do just in case. Now she goes to another doctor and the statistics are not looking good because all of a sudden she's got the bad indicators which is recurrence within a year, recurrence within a radiated area, recurrence that is estrogen negative, the same poorly differentiated histology and it's in a new type of tissue. And this puts a lot of strain on their relationship. There's even a moment where they have a bit of an argument about this because, well, Trey goes out for some exercise and Ken decides to talk to her mother and sister and fill them in. And Trey takes this to be, well, you're telling my story. And there's a bit of tension there. And they call up one of the best oncologists in the world. They've been searching around so many doctors. They've searched for so much advice. And they do come across one of the world's best oncologists. And he says, well, he has to tell them the news. He has to say how, how he really feels. He says, recent studies have shown that women who had a recurrence after a chest wall recurrence, a resection after a chest wall recurrence, which is basically what Trey has had, and did not have chemotherapy, relapsed at the rate of 50% at nine months, 70% at three years, and 95% at five years. So this means that if she doesn't do chemotherapy, she's got a 50% chance that in nine months it will reoccur. But what if it doesn't? That's the flip side. Because to go through chemotherapy, like what are we actually talking? We're talking losing her hair, carrying a portable pump around four days and nights out of every three weeks for a year while it drips poison into her. Her white blood cells die. Her mouth will develop sores. And then there will be damage to the heart. Would that be really worth it? Would that treatment be worth worse than the disease? And then on the other hand, what about a 50% chance of lethal recurrence within nine months? So there is a chance that, well, there's nothing you can do.
and they keep calling more doctors and they figure out that, well, the only, ra- the only way they're going to get a decision from the medical establishment is if they talk to an odd number of physicians. Because they all say, well, it's local. No, it's a chest wall. And the difference is, well, you're going to be looking at hardcore cancer of the most aggressive type with the most aggressive chemotherapy. Or you could be in the clear. So it's a very tricky decision to make. It's very complex. And it all hinges on just what the diagnosis is. Is this chest wall or local? And Ken gets an idea. And he says the pathology report, the report that decides just how poorly differentiated the cells are, really is the only piece of information they have. That these things are, well, these decisions and diagnoses are resting on. So he says, who's the one person they haven't talked to? And of course, it's the pathologist. It's the one who's actually been looking down into the microscope to analyze the cells. So they make a few calls. And they manage to, well, Ken manages to get this pathologist on the phone. And he explains, well, I'm the wife of this person, this patient, and I need to make some difficult decisions, and I'd like to ask you. And the doctor is understanding. And Ken explains, well, we've consulted more than a dozen doctors, and they're all divided precisely down the middle as to whether this is local or metastatic. He just wants to know, asks Ken, how aggressive did the cells look? And the doctor says, All right, Mr. Wilbur. I don't want to alarm you, but since you ask, I'll tell you honestly. In my career as a pathologist, I have never seen a meaner cancer cell. I'm not exaggerating or saying that for emphasis. I'm trying to be precise. I personally have not seen a more aggressive cell. And Kenny's on the phone, listening to this. And he looks at Treya. And he does not move. He does not blink. He is frozen. And Ken asks, Tell me, doctor, if this was your wife, would you recommend to her that she do chemotherapy? And the doctor says, I'm afraid I'd have to recommend 
the most aggressive course of chemotherapy that could be tolerated. And the odds if it were, as you say, my wife, I would want somebody to tell me that although miracles abound, the odds are not very good. And Ken hangs up the phone. And this is the story. Well, what's going to happen next? What is going to happen next? And we'll find out very soon in the next episode. And that's all I have to say for now.